0: So, I'd just like to introduce who will be speaking to you. Um, Many of them are very well known to you, I'm sure. So we have delighted to have Paula Meehan, poet, uh, I think is enough, a strong statement. We have Lianne Bell, who is known for many things. She's also a a designer. She's an arts manager and she was the the catalyst and the campaign director of Waking the Feminists. We have writer-actor Tara Flynn, who has done so much. We have Senator Alice Mary Higgins, this One of the stars of our show, Claire Barrett, is with us to read a piece by Noelle Brown. Noelle Brown is a theatre maker, and a writer, also an actor. She'll be known to many of you here. Her piece, Postscript, is coming up in the Peacock in June. And when I saw that, I realised that that's a piece that chimes very closely with the train in the sense that it's a piece that uh, tackles church and state in the way that the train very, very different form. It's a personal story that, that uh, Noelle is telling, but that's why we've asked Noelle to give us a written contribution, which, which Claire will read. Um. <laughs> and Anna Cosgrave is um, a parliamentary assistant to, li- to Senator Lynn Ruan uh, as, as one of her roles, but she's also a, a model young activist in the sense that she doesn't just. Uh, wear the T-shirt, actually, she invented the T-shirt. So every time you've seen a, a repeal top, that is Anna's campaign, and it's been massively successful, and she will tell you a little bit about that. So that... Uh, okay. um, and also today is very much about you. We, are, we would love to have your responses. So just to give you an idea of the structure, these brilliant speakers will speak for um, uh, about five minutes each. They'll just come to, this, to, to, to the lectern and, and say their piece. Then we will welcome two, we have, of the founder members of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, and we will discuss with them the 1971 and activism. And then we will reflect with our our panel um, on contemporary feminism. I will pass over to our first speaker, Paul Meehan. Thank you.
1: I appreciate the chance to stand here and talk to you today. Um, I'm wearing my hat as a member, a founder member of the Artists' Campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment here. So I'm going to talk about that. Uh, the Artists' Campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment was founded two years ago by a group of artists, Cecily Brennan, Etna Jordan, Alice Marr, Cindy Cummins, Leah Mills, myself and others. We were determined to challenge the way things are and have been for women, and by extension, all other citizens bound by and suffering under the malign oppression of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. Ireland's Constitution mentions women only twice. Firstly, to say that her place is in the home, Article 41, and secondly to say that the foetus has exactly the same rights as the mother, Article 43.3. The Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution was added after a referendum in 1983. The Eighth Amendment enshrines what are essentially theocratic values and who, whatever one's gender, wants to live in a theocracy that denies basic human rights to anyone with a womb. It is our conviction that now is the right time for repeal. If we fail in this generation to secure a secular republic based on humanist values, then the future is too bleak to contemplate. We condemn yet another generation to crucifixion. And we leave ourselves open to other theocracies coming down the line, other oppressions. There is no doubting this, unless and until we create a secular republic, a law-based republic founded on the principles of respect, equality and justice for all, then we will always be vulnerable to the often illogical and always prejudiced views of the theocrats. The thing about oppression is that it becomes so culturally bound into the psyche that it becomes internalized. And we begin to do the work of the theocracy ourselves in our heart of hearts to oppress ourselves. We crucify ourselves in shame and self-blame. That has to stop We need to put the blame for this pernicious amendment back where it belongs, on the Catholic Church and its barbaric agents. We must refuse the shaming of women. We must direct the shame back at the spineless cohort that still, despite the reams and years of evidence of criminal abuse, does the bidding of a discredited church. We must resist this pernicious amendment to a constitution that was ghostwritten by an archbishop. The statement, which I'll read, and it's at the heart of the artist's campaign, um, and is as follows. The Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of Ireland, Article 433, inserted in 90 19- 83 has prevented our doctors and our legislators from providing proper care to women in Ireland. The resulting physical and emotional trauma inflicted on women is inexcusable and an ongoing cause of shame for Irish citizens. The Eighth Amendment undermines the status of the Irish Constitution. It is a key source of Ireland's failure to reach international human rights standards and of the state's failure to meet its obligations to vindicate women's human rights. We, the undersigned artists, call for the repeal of the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution and for action, action by our elected legislators to provide women in Ireland with modern reproductive health services in line with best medical practice and international human rights norms. Now that statement is, is up online at www.artistrepealthe8.com and the 8th is the numeral and we invite anyone here who identifies as artist to add their name to our statement. We have over 3,000 signatories now, visual artists, literary artists, theatre artists, actors, performance artists, architects, designers, dancers, choreographers, musicians, people working in film and TV and cyberspace, roughly 50-50 male and female to judge by the names, though that is only an indication. All age groups are represented, from people in their 80s to students just setting out on the path of artists, we come from all over Ireland and beyond. We number internationally recognised artists, household names in some cases, but the majority are of the hard-working tribe of artists who earn for Ireland a worldwide reputation for cultural achievement, despite and in spite of the failed politics of the state. We are many, we are strong, and we will be heard. Thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Leanne Bell and as Caroline mentioned I was involved in the Waking the Feminist campaign which if you don't know was a year-long campaign about uh, equality for women in Irish theatre and I suppose I'm going to be talking about the value of different kinds of voices in activism. Nearly a year and a half ago I stood on this stage for the first time at the first public meeting of Waking the Feminists, without doubt the most extraordinary day of my life so far and I'd say there's a few other people who might say that as well. I took my place here with 30 other women working in theatre who for the first time were speaking up and saying things publicly that we'd only ever murmured to our friends, if we'd murmured them out loud at all. And we were being listened to. How extraordinary to speak and truly be listened to. The director, Katrina McLaughlin, said on that day, quote, it's not enough to be given a voice anymore. I am here today to use my own voice and to say it's time to hear all our stories From the streets, from the pubs, from the workplace, from our living rooms. It's time to hear those voices, unmediated and unqualified. It's time to hear them in all their righteous fury and tender mercies. Lads, it's time to listen. Ladies, it's time to speak. Over the past year and a half, I and many of the women around me have had to learn how to speak. We've had to learn to get over whatever natural inclination we have to be more passive, acquiescent, and to not rock the boat. Personally, I've had to learn to speak up, to say the things I believe are right, firmly and calmly, so I have the most chance to get listened to by the people who have the most power in our theatre community. This is not everyone's way. Some people prefer to rage and let rip. I can't do that, I don't have the firiness to back it up. But I really appreciate those who can. I've learned through Waking the Feminists' campaign that loose cannons can be really useful when you're trying to be diplomatic, to say the things that you may think but can't say. Also, their extremism can make you look moderate and reasonable. (laughs) Without them, your position might look scarily extreme. Waking the Feminists was a happy accident, a convergence of events at the right time with the right people. Really, it couldn't have been a more right group of people. If you want to charge forward full of energy, to work collaboratively with a disparate group of personalities and have one idealistic, maybe gloriously improbable goal in sight and put on a cracker of a show, you can't do any better than having theatre people around you. We mainly operated on a basis of self-selection for the jobs that needed to be done, meaning often that the people who are used to being the organisers, the producers, the managers and administrators, were the ones who stepped forward fastest. We'd never run a campaign, but we've coordinated meetings, we've run events, and we've lobbied for money. That's what we do. And the core group of Waking the Feminists over the year of the campaign tended to reflect that. I suppose I'm a little unusual in that I straddled the artist-administrator divide, so I'm lucky to be able to put on whichever hat is most appropriate at the time. But it was vitally important that we made sure at all times that we, we were talking with and checking in with other artists with directors and writers and actors and designers, that they understood that their voices and their suggestions and their challenges were as as intrinsic a part of the campaign as ours were. They were absolutely necessary. Artists see things differently. Artists question things in ways that are unexpected and enlightening. Artists can voice things in ways that refresh and enliven what might be dismissed as stale arguments. I still appreciate specific conversations I had with individual artists, especially in the first month of the campaign, which gave me perspectives that I wouldn't have been able to see on my own. And anyone who watches back on the video of our first event here will see the passion and eloquence that every speaker put into their short speech. These artists' voices are articulate and measured, angry and powerful. (laughs) Artists also, thank God, catch the public's attention in a way that can be incredibly useful. Having someone of the calibre of Meryl Streep, a superb a- actor with political integrity, come out on your favour turns out to be worth its weight in media gold. And closer to home, when Nidge, a.k.a. Tom Vaughn Lawler, came out as a stalwart feminist ally at our event here last November, he connected with a different audience again. We've come to the end of a one-year public campaign, which proved to be more effective than any of us could have dreamed. And while personally it's quite a relief to get some of my life back, I'm acutely aware that none of us can relax quite yet, if ever, it's not over. There are still venues and festivals and companies that need to be reminded by us, their artists and their audiences, that we want them to support and champion women on and off stage. They need to be aware that the storm has not passed, that equality for women is still important to us and that we are still watching them carefully. So find what voice you have whether it's one full of righteous fury or one of diplomatic persistence, and make sure you keep using it, not just for yourself, but for the people around you who don't have a voice. Online is fine, but nothing beats more direct means. Yes, you're bound to annoy someone. Yes, they'll try to dismiss you. Yes, they'll probably bitch about you behind your back. But you know what? Our sisters and our stories are more important than that. Thank you.
3: Hi there, I'm Tara, Tara Flynn and um, I uh, usually, I like to do things through comedy. I'm an actor and writer but a lot of my work comes out, just comes out funny um, so I was going to do something for you today about, about boobs uh, but um, it wouldn't be so appropriate. So I've been asked to do something about, uh, about my activism and this is a piece I wrote about two years ago. It's a few years since anyone was burnt at the stake in Ireland. There was that poor woman who haunts half the properties in Kilkenny, but since she went up in flames, you're not really supposed to do witch hunts anymore, not really. We're much more civilised now, even if we suspect someone of having a devotion to crystals, or more than one cat. But if you ever want to rouse a baying mob, howling for your blood, and come on, who doesn't love that? There is still one surefire thing you can do. Say the word abortion. Even better mentioned that you've had one. People won't be long dragging you to the village square for a good old-fashioned shaming and I should know I am that witch. Of course instead of village squares these days we have the internet and with it everyone's presumed entitlement to have their say or a right old go. Thankfully it turns out they're only a tiny part of the picture but I'll come back to that. Nearly two years ago, I publicly told my own story of having to travel for an abortion. Now, as we know, abortions themselves are not news in Ireland. We all know someone who's had one. It's a common procedure, not a pleasant one. A crisis pregnancy is the furthest thing from pleasant, you could imagine. But it's definitely common and usually simple. The decision leading to it isn't straightforward, but the procedure is. Reaching that decision is one of the hardest things many people ever have to do. But once their mind is made up and they've explored every option, sometimes termination is the only way for them, if only they could access it legally and safely. But here in Ireland, you can't. So you're forced to explore other options. Maxing out your credit card if you're privileged enough to have a credit card. On flights, accommodation, the procedure itself to get yourself to Britain or the Netherlands like I did. Or you stay in Ireland. And continue a pregnancy you didn't choose and with which you cannot cope. You think the days of people hurling themselves downstairs, using coat hangers or crashing the car, just enough, are gone the way of witch burnings, we'll think again. That's happening to women who can't afford to travel or whose visas don't allow them to today. Today. I'll say it again just so we're clear, the stuff of gothic horror is happening today. So I decided to tell my story like others have uh, in an attempt to give a human face to the abstract numbers, 12 a day, and the demonization of people who make this choice. And giving up your privacy is no small thing. I don't love having people at the supermarket thinking about my uterus, but suddenly it was news. (laughs) You know what is the crack? When anonymous Egypts react to your crisis pregnancy with wisdom, and compassion, such as, why not close your legs, you slut? Or, if you didn't want to get pregnant, you should have used contraception, you think, bitch. Why didn't I think of that? Thank you, boys. It is nearly always boys, because we all know that contraception always works. It doesn't. You know, it mostly does. I've been sexually active for a long time, decades, I'd say and pregnant only the once. That's pretty responsible if you think about it. I know about contraception, thank you for splaining. But actually on this occasion, I had taken a morning after pill and it didn't work. It can happen. Guess I'm just one of the lucky ones. Those people throw around words meant to wound even deeper, to stigmatize and shame words like evil, killer, murderer. Well, all I can tell you is what I personally believe that it isn't murder. That's, that's what I believe. People believe many different things. There will never be consensus, but I don't believe it's murder. Many people do believe that it's murder and they still find themselves needing an abortion. They deserve support and compassion too. My belief still didn't make it an easy decision, but it did make it clear. And this is one of the main reasons that I am pro-choice and that I campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Because it doesn't matter what I believe, each individual has to be free to choose, to determine their future according to their beliefs. It seems so obvious to me that no one should interfere in this incredibly personal decision, not the state, not concerned trolls, not anyone. I hope you're never faced with it. But if you are, I hope all the options are safely available to you and we all have to work on that together. The most judgmental voices, the lads and certain lassies leading the shame posse, torches aflame, tend to be those who've never thought about what they or someone close to them would do in that situation. You can't know till you're in it. I didn't. But the statistical likelihood is that someone close to them has been in this situation. The euphemisms, gone to England, sorted it out. And they've never told them. Some people don't even tell their mums. I didn't initially. And when I did, she was 100% there for me because Irish mammies rock. I mentioned that the shunning and the shaming were only part of the picture and that is true. When I decided to tell my own story, I had a secret hope that times had changed. I felt it that they had. For all the bitch-whore killer slut-slingers out there or those gleefully challenging me to debate the most personal aspects of my life, picking over my bones, trying to tear me down. For all of them, there was just as much love There was support, there was the privilege of shared stories, my inbox overflows with people's own stories. And we know each other when we meet, we show ourselves, we don't even have to say a word, we just nod, we know, I know, me too. Hundreds of thousands of us sick of being called criminals by our own country, of having a constitution declaring us worth no more than a fertilised egg. Shortly after I told my story, back in 2015, I emceed the March for Choice. There I was, out in the village square, warts and all. But nobody set me on fire, not a torch in sight. And each year since, although we've been ignored by those in power, we add more voices, thousands more than ever before in support of their sisters, mothers, friends, wives. Something has shifted, something has unstuck, and it's magic. The witch hunters may still be out there, but my feet, my feet haven't even been singed.
4: Thank you very much. It's uh, great to, to follow so many am- amazing women. And also, um, uh, I don't for me, being in a feminist space and being in the theatre feel really right together. Um, I know that one of the first times that I saw the the, the depths of um, inequality that we had in Ireland was for me when I was a 15-year-old and I went to uh, a reading. A friend of mine was involved in the first reading of Patricia Burke-Brogan's uh, Eclipsed about the Magdalene laundries. And it was the same year that, uh, for me, I was marching for the very first time um, on the X case as a teenager. And I remember those those two things at the same time of having this kind of historical thing uncovered and then realising that it was still there and now. Um, and, and it was really, theatre was, was, was key to me at that time, so I'm, I'm happy to be in this space in particular talking about this issue. And um, uh, I think, I mean, I think some of what I'm talking about is, is a little bit the, the international picture, what's coming now and what's next and where we are. And um, we are at a moment, you talked, uh, I think Tara said about something shifting. We are at a moment of something shifting. Things are shifting. And we are seeing now that the demand Uh, for equality for women, the demand for women's rights, the demand for a remaking of space, of spaces, uh, the demand for space and time. That is happening on a different scale and it's happening everywhere. And I just want to acknowledge, of course, because we're going to have the amazing women uh, of, uh, of the movement in the 1970s. And I think they had that same spirit of ambition. The idea to say, yes, we're going to have a meeting and it'll be in the mansion house. And we're going to take a significant space and we'll put the invitation out on the 14th, I think on, you are saying on the 14th of April that year, and, uh, <clears throat> and create a space. And when you create space and time and when you demand space and time, what happens is many, many other voices that have been silenced come through. And that's why they had a thousand people turning up there. And that's why when things like the Waking the Feminist Movement and others, every time that a battle has gone into to open up a new space for debate and for, for the debate on equality, it's amazing who comes through and it's amazing how many other voices come through. And I think we're seeing right now, there is um, something Paula said, we talked about, I think it was, when inequality is, is culturally bound into the psyche, we are at a moment now in Ireland and also globally, when that cultural binding of inequality has come unstuck. It's come loose when the arguments, the kind of deeply embedded and individually internalised arguments that people took on about where people sit, what the natural hierarchies are, where everybody is in the power down, they're coming coming unravelled. People are no longer buying and convinced by the argument. And that's why we see the demand coming through and it's coming through in in science, it's coming through in sport. We have the amazing women's football team coming up and demanding their space for equality. It's coming through in every single realm. It's coming through in politics. And I know I'm, uh, I think, the first woman in 35 years elected on my panel, a quite conservative panel within the electoral system in the Shannon. Um, So there's there's a demand and a space coming through that's through. But alongside that, as the strong and embedded powers that are there begin to lose the cultural argument and they are losing it and the artists who are here are helping them lose it, there is a backlash. There is a backlash that comes. Because when the automatic privilege is no longer automatic, it needs to still be asserted. And that's why we are looking at a new wave of very authoritarianism, an authoritarian assertion, of inequality, an authoritarian assertion of a privilege. And that's why I'm, I'm focusing a little bit today on the international picture. Because we have, and I've met in the, you know, even just a couple of weeks ago, I got to meet with an incredible women's group in Bangladesh who are fighting to make Dhaka city, you know, that Dhaka city a space where women can participate equally. The woman's right to the city. Um, we've seen incredible women in East Africa who are campaigning against FGM, as well as all of the brilliant women's movements that are happening right across Europe. America and at that same time we see the shift so for example uh, just as women's education becomes a real reality globally we see attacks on women on girls schools we see particular targeting of girls as they go into education Uh, just as we finally nearly have real legislation on domestic violence and on violence against women we see Russia decriminalizing domestic violence making it okay and legal again because they want to establish an authoritarian rule that within the House, the man's rule will be uh, unquestioned by the state. So we're looking at that. We see uh, in Hungary what has been happening. We see the dismantling and attacks on the women's movement that are happening there. We saw in Poland where they amazingly attempted to, c- to copy our terrible legislation, um, but got the response. But for every piece of repressive new authoritarian step that is taken, we see that there is a women's movement and it's springing up and it is there and it's not silenced and they've lost the cultural argument and they will also lose the argument on authoritarianism. They will lose the forceful argument as well. But it is something we need to acknowledge. And one of the things that we need to acknowledge and that a very, a very new step on it is the global gag rule. So those of us who are concerned about abortion will now see um, the latest executive order uh, from um, uh, the, the President of the United States in which um, it's it's making sure that there won't be funding for women's sexual health and reproductive rights from USAID anywhere that there is any potential connection with abortion. But it's going to hit lots of maternity services. And it's coming at a time, for example, when the Zika virus has spread from South America, but is now in East Asia. So we have one of the most devastating epidemics. An epidemic, if it didn't just affect women, if it affected others, would be now, as the bird flew on the news every evening as it spreads, because of the devastating effect that um, the Zika virus is having on, on pregnant women. Even at that moment of crisis, we see a complete rollback on funding, of potentially billions um, of funding rolled back uh, worldwide. And yet again, there is a response. And this is the pause. I know I sound very negative, but this is just to be real and we have it. There is a response because it was extraordinary to see that within, within a week of that order, the She Decides movement came into play. And we had many, many nations, and I hope Ireland is not yet there, but I hope Ireland will join them, who came forward and said, we will match and we will replace all the funding that has taken away. And we're going to make sure that we assert uh, women's sexual health and reproductive rights services around the world. So there is, there is a grand battle in play, to be clear. And Ireland is in a key central role in it not just for the reasons we might think, but also because Ireland is now, next year, going to be the chair of the United Nations Council on the Status of Women. So we're going to be chairing the highest-profile UN body to look at the rights of women globally. And, you know, it's important, not just because, you know, it's important what Ireland says and what stand we take and all of these issues, because, you know, actually Ireland's probably going to say all the right things and take all kinds of good stands on that international level. But there's also a challenge we need to say How can we be taking that in a credible way if we don't get our house in order in Ireland, if we don't face up to the inequalities that we have, to the devastating structures we have? And this is the great thing. I mean, Ireland actually has the chance to be a nation, to be a nation who acknowledges the deep and depth of abuse, who acknowledges the systematic inequalities that we have and who takes the steps to to lead the way for the world in how you face up to that. In how you acknowledge that and how you move on but the problem is at the moment I think politically there's a strong desire to move on without facing the past and it's not going to be enough to put a veneer of modernity over ourselves as a state or to put a kind of slick of sentimentality over uh, the deep in- unequal structures and systems that are in place a layer of sentimentality isn't enough we need to pull back the layers but what we don't like to do is to dig deep because when we dig in Ireland we find all kinds of terrible terrible things and we don't like to dismantle because when we dismantle it comes at cost it's economically hard we have to go deep so the real challenge now for Ireland is are we willing to go digging and are we willing to start taking apart the structures that are there and are we willing to face up to the obstacles I'm sure we're going to get a chance to talk about some of those issues, and I think they're there, but it's really important to what I last want to kind of say is when we go in, as we go into, which I think is actually an exciting moment for Ireland to, to, to face up openly to that challenge. When we go into that, I think solidarity is going to be really important. I think the solidarity is there between women and men. And I think mo- lots of men now realise that feminism has been an extraordinary positive gift to them as it's, it's put issues like care on the agenda, It's put issues like intimate partner violence on the agenda. It's addressed, it's brought the issues to the fore. And we always know, and I always think of it when I'm here because of Alina Maloney, the Women's Workers' Union, who won two weeks holiday, back when we had no holidays in Ireland. The first, the only union to go out fighting for holidays was the Women's Workers' Union. We all benefited from it. And I think there is a strong realisation about many men in Ireland now, that that this feminism battle is one that's a remaking, that's gonna benefit them all. But there's also an intergenerational solidarity that's needed because we can't let the issues time out if we don't face up to the the situation in the mother and baby homes. We need to face up to that so we can battle for rights for lone parents now. We need to face the pension inequalities that are deep and systemic, but they just assume that older women won't fight back. Age action have an amazing report on that that's out at the moment. We need to face that because we have a whole new generation of women in precarious work who are facing up to long-term poverty, unless we address it. And we do need to address the role of women in history and in making our state, because we need to be sure that we're really championing the women in in making the future. And and maybe a last thing I'll just say, just as we dismantle and we talk about dismantling, one of the things, one of the the kind of structures that we dismantle, if 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 we looked, what does it mean to actually take the church out of our schools, to actually take the church out of our hospitals, to actually dismantle those structures and remake them. That's one part of becoming a Republic. And another part is to say, let's take back the constitution when another generation, even before the amazing generation of 1970s feminists, the 1930s feminists who fought so hard against the constitution because even then they knew it was bad, you know, who came out and campaigned again. How do we now be through to those women of the 1930s, through to the women of the 1970s who are still with us and are still all campaigning and we're all going to be in it together and actually take the next step and make sure we take back our constitution and and we remake it and we make it something fit for a republic, as Paula said. So I think we've an exciting challenge and moment. I think Ireland, small as we are, is kind of in in the centre of the world (laughs) when it comes to this issue. We have some of the worst and we have some of the most powerful and exciting opportunities uh, uh, ahead of us as well. I look forward to us all working and discussing how we're gonna make it all happen. So thank you very much.
5: Hello, my name is Claire Barrett, and I'm very honoured to be reading this letter today on behalf of no- Noelle Brown. Abbey Theatre, Abbey Street, Dublin 1, Friday, the 14th of April, 2017. Dear Church and State, my name is Noelle Brown, and I was born in Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in 1965. I am an actor, playwright, and adoption rights activist. I am writing to tell you about an image that haunts me. The image is of my 18-year-old heavily pregnant birth mother on her knees scrubbing a convent floor. An 18-year-old woman subjugated and shamed for becoming pregnant with me. A shame that I know never left her for the rest of her life. A shame that I inherited and reinforced by church and state all through my childhood with the phrase bad blood will out. The shaming of me as an adopted person with my bastard status still goes on in 2017. When I approach you, the church and state, with my questions about my birth, my identity, I'm made to feel ashamed for asking. I am made to feel ashamed when I ask for and am denied a birth cert that says on this day in this year I was born. I am made to feel ashamed when I am told I have no right to my medical records that hold information about my own body. I am made to feel ashamed by strangers appointed by the state when they say, but sure, didn't it all work out in the end? Didn't you have a happy childhood with your adopted family? Why do you want information? You should be grateful for what you have. You were lucky. I feel ashamed when I realise I don't fit in with the generations of blood-related families that make you an acceptable citizen of Ireland. You, the state, along with the church, have increased my level of shame this year with a piece of legislation called the Adoption, Information and Tracing Bill. A piece of legislation drawn up with little or no consultation with adopted people. A piece of legislation created by people with no experience of being adopted whose frames of reference are, well, this is what I would want for my child. Except their child has not been separated from them for 20, 30, 40 or 50 years. Those frames of reference are not helpful or relevant when drawing up legislation for adopted people. This piece of legislation will give TUSLA power over every scrap of personal information that pertains to 50,000 adopted people's births. TUSLA, an organisation whose focus is on children. Adopted people are not children anymore. We are adults. Why are they being given our files? TUSLA, an organisation that is not unbiased by virtue of being responsible for those adoptions in the first place. The Adoption Information and Tracing Bill will ask an adopted person to sign a statutory declaration stating that they will never search for a birth parent before they are given access to their birth cert. What will happen if they break this statutory declaration? Will they be criminalised? Mary Hannafin in the early 90s tried to put forward a piece of legislation that would criminalise adopted people for tracing their birth families. Brian Lennon suggested that might not be a good idea, and it was dropped. I was made to feel ashamed when I questioned this barbaric piece of legislation. I sat in rooms with strangers who had power to change the laws for adopted people and birth mothers and told my story over and over again... And they looked at me and asked, but why are you here? I was there because so many women and men like me are still carrying the shame and trauma that was inflicted on them and they will never be able to sit where I am sitting. As an actor and playwright, I have stood on stage and told my adoption story. People asked, why would you speak so openly about something so personal? Does it help? Did it make everything better? No, it doesn't make everything better, but it has helped me to find my voice for the anger and grief I feel for adopted people and birth mothers in this country. People were shocked and horrified at my story. We are so good in this country at being shocked and horrified. In twenty fourteen, everyone was shocked and horrified at the revelations from the tomb mother and baby home. The only response from you, the state, was setting up of a commission of inquiry into the mother and baby homes. How many inquiries have we had now? How many tribunals have we had and nothing happens? No one is ever held accountable. In 2017, the Commission of Inquiry revealed what we had already learned in 2014, that yes, babies and young children were dumped and buried like human trash on the grounds of Chew Mother and Baby Home. Shock and horror all over again. The only upside of the inquiry is that Besper and Mother and Baby Home is now on the radar as another chapter in the barbaric practices in Mother and Baby Homes. But we knew that too. Everyone knew what went on in Bessborough. I grew up with those stories. I met with the Confidential Commission who forms one part of the inquiry into the mother and baby homes to give my story. I repeatedly asked them to investigate if I was part of vaccine trials in Bessborough. I was told that someone would decide if I was a fit candidate to meet with the Commission of Investigation, a separate section of the inquiry. I felt ashamed for asking and have heard nothing since. What does a confidential commission mean? It means they took my hour-long testimony and filed it away confidentially. Confidentially means it will go somewhere where no one will see it or read it and nothing will be done. Church and state, you did not do right by my birth mother and you are not doing right by me. I don't feel shock and horror when details of tomb and Bespera are revealed. I feel something that rips into the very core of my being. I am weighed down by the grief that it causes me. A deep grief that I have to push away so I can speak and articulate my feelings clearly and try to effect change. I am heartsick, like every birth mother and adopted person in the country. But I'm an artist and I can make my voice heard. Thousands of adopted people and birth mothers can't. Mind yourself in all this, people keep telling me. And I'm trying, but I am struggling and questioning how I survived Bessborough mother and baby home when so many didn't. And yes, shame has hit me again at 51 years of age. Bad blood will out. My grief is hard to articulate and you, church and state, just want to give me tea and sympathy when I do speak. Save me your emotional speeches in the doll in the aftermath of Tuamenda. They are no use to me. I have heard it all before and it does nothing to change the situation. I don't want your sympathy. I want your lawmaking. I want to feel equal to every other citizen in Ireland and not remain a reminder of our terrible past and one that needs to shut up and get over it. Karl Marx once said, The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Take me out of this nightmare and give me equality as an Irish citizen. Give me my medical information, my birth cert, my identity and prize the steely grip of the Irish church and state off my body, my name and my very existence. Yours Noelle Brown.
6: Hi everyone, I'd have to say I was asked to speak last night and in one instance I felt so humbled but also kind of horrified that I had allowed this womanly kind of imposter syndrome take over my body where I had come to this realization that for some reason, you know, I was gonna share the stage with these kind of absolutely spectacular women And having seen the train, and I kind of only fully understood how difficult and how hard it was for those women just in that time and in that ecosystem. And when I was looking at the other speakers and I was imagining how all of these women have really, really informed kind of what I'm doing now... So to Paula, whose poetry has completely shaped how I fashion my narrative and how I'm a little bit teary, I'm very emotional. Um, To Lian, who's like, we're standing here um, in the Abbey Theatre and because of a movement that she started less than a year ago, we're now going to be hearing and listening and just, I think she's impacted so many and all of the people who uh, were on the campaign with you, so many young theatre um, artists and producers to Tara, who, you know, I could, or donate, I could give a whole speech to, but who really, alongside Roisin, had she not shared her personal story, you know, I really don't know um, if I would have had the courage to start repeal, and who was actually the first person I met with, and I gave a jumper, and I said to, you know, as a woman who had travelled, would it, would it, I might just get some water, it'll calm me down a little bit. (laughs) I'm um. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I just asked her, honestly, if it would make a marginal difference. And when I saw her reaction, I just thought I would plough ahead. To Alice Mary, who's now a cohort of like an, some amazing female politicians in Leinster House that are absolutely trailblazing. We just found out earlier, she's made her 90, 90th speech in the Shannon. And the bill, the bill that was just mentioned in the previous speech is one that she's championed. So that as well is really exciting. Opposed, 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 of course. <laughs> ah! um, Champion the championing the opposition you understand and then just to just to Claire who her performance and how well she encapsulated both the pain uh, of women of that time I thought it was just such a magnificent humorous portrayal and um, I wanted to start off with with a poem because for me personally um kind of Politics and poetry is really so closely linked, um, as is art and activism. So I'm just so glad to be kind of speaking on a stage that um, is championing them both. It's slightly ironic because this is the poem that I first read in the library in fourth year of secondary school when I refused to go to religion class. So this is uh, a poem by Marge Piercy. So maybe I have a um, a lot to thank her for. So she says, I will choose what enters me what becomes of my flesh. Without choice, no politics, no ethics live. I am not your cornfield, not your uranium mine, not your calf for fattening, not your cow for milking. You may not use me as your factory. Priests and legislators do not hold shares in my womb or my mind. This is my body. I give it to you. I want it back. My life is a non-negotiable. Negotiable demand. So, yeah, thank you to Marge. So, I know. Um, I know Caroline just wanted me to talk a little bit, kind of about my personal journey, and then a little bit about kind of youth activism, and. I suppose it was in sec- It was actually when I was much younger, maybe before secondary school, when I was 10 or 11, and I was at a sleepover of a friend who now actively campaigns against me. And in the sleepover, uh, we were saying the rosary, um, as you do um, in a kind of a provincial <laughs> town uh, in Wicklow. And it was then I was handed my first um, anti-abortion propaganda. And it was then and there I started questioning the church. I asked, why is the only female iconography, um, you know, a a virgin woman? It just did not make sense to me. And even to this day, when I meet girls, I know that their parents are saving up money to buy them communion dresses. And should that have been the case a few years ago, not so long ago, should they have found themselves in a a pregnancy out of wedlock, they would have been enslaved and kidnapped. So I'm just constantly reminded about that, that time in my life around, around my communion, Union. Um, but just to kind of uh, plough on, so when I was in, in university, I suppose, I was coming to kind of know this whole idea around feminism in a more of an academic and intellectual sense. I know Jean Sutton uh, is in the audience, and she had started a magazine called Siren. And I actually remember at the night of the launch after that, and Senator Sabone was speaking, I didn't feel confident enough. I didn't think I had read as much as some of the other girls to really kind of proudly say that I was a feminist. And I think it wasn't until the Civita Civita Vigil. um, Around that time, I had been studying various different birthing practices across Bolivia. And I'd been cross uh, cross comparing kind of tribal matriarchal pregnancy practices and I had never looked at Ireland and on the night of the vigil going back to my room it just exploded. I could not believe I felt so ignorant and kind of so foolish. So that I suppose is when the wrath was unleashed. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, In terms of where repeal is at now, I think it was meeting uh, Lynn Ruan who I now kind of work for part-time And I had just begun The Jumpers and she was speaking at Body and Soul kind of about class and activism. And when she said that she hadn't understood in an intellectual sense the term feminism until she was 26 or that, you know, she didn't really understand the contraceptive pill when she fell pregnant at 15 it was when how I was looking at how I was approaching my feminism was just turned uh, completely upside down. So I kind of have a lot uh, a lot of thanks to, to give to her and even her daughter, who's going to be an absolutely amazing um, activist. She's really, really brilliant. I want to say that it's so amazing to be in a room with Nell and Maureen, who we're going to hear from later, because the girls that I meet who are in university and there's a secondary school demonstration on Wednesday, they are so enraged, they are so well equipped with the feminist narrative and the feminist language and they do constantly reference and realise how much more difficult it was for women um, kind of before our time. So I am very excited, like in UCD there's Hazel Nolan in DCU, there's Alana Kern, there's these amazing really young um, activists and I feel like really hopeful um, for what's going to happen. But. I'm just going to finish on a poem and it's by a friend, um, Sarah Maria Griffin, and she had written a poem and met with a director and they made this piece uh, on the beach and that's kind of where I properly met Roisin Ingle as well and throughout this journey I remember going into it being like I have a skin of metal and I had thought that like I had ground my teeth down so hard from so many sexist remarks uh, throughout my life that I would be totally fine and I'd have to say that Campaigning is difficult. Like it is, you know, it's pretty hard. So, yeah, I definitely just owe a lot of thanks to them. So this is Sarah Maria Griffith's poem, We Face This Land, and thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, this is my Abbey debut! (laughs) Centuries ago, women accused of witchcraft faced, amongst other ordeals, trial by water tied to a chair or run under a boat if she survives the drowning and floats she's a witch if she dies she's a woman we are not witches but if the church and state insist then let us be the descendants of all the witches they could not drown this heirloom of trauma this curse this agony of water in order to hold agency over our bodies not all of us have survived the waves do not part there are no miracles here When the stethoscope is a crucifix on your belly how do you have any choice but the water and fair medical treatment on on another land a body is 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 a body not a house not a city not a vessel not a country the laws of the church have no place on your flesh a veterinarian will abort a calf if a cow is falling ill how is it that livestock is worth more to this land than us? 11 women every day leave Ireland seeking an abortion abroad. We ask for the land over water, home over trial, choice over none. For our former, there is ourselves, the generations yet to come. Witches or women, these are our bodies, which shall not be given up. Thanks. <laughs>